Chapter three of Six Years in the Prisons of England by a Merchant, edited by Frank Henderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three. Three months in a Scottish prison. Begin my study of the convict and his surroundings. An old jailbird, a soldier, an innocent convict, my first cracksman, acquaintance, conspiracy to murder an officer and escape, my removal to England. The paroxysm of grief and indignation which followed my return to prison gradually subsided, and after a few days I became in some measure resigned to my fate and determined as far as possible to make the best of it. Indeed, in some respects, the change in my circumstances was for the better. The oatmeal treatment, it is true, was still continued, but with this difference that I now got more of it, and a still further and most welcome addition of a pennyworth of good milk and a pennyworth of eatable bread per diem. I remained on this diet during the three months and a half which elapsed before I was removed to England. Footnote 2 Perth, where the diet is more liberal, was not then opened for convicts. End of footnote 2 Unfortunately, during this time, my stomach, though craving for animal food, would not accept the oatmeal or chief portion of my diet, and accordingly I was in the practice of dividing it amongst my fellow prisoners. I mentioned my case to the medical officer, but had to rest content with a little quinine and the assurance that I would be sent to England in a day or two, where I would get a few ounces of animal food daily. To add to my troubles, one of my ankles began to swell, but after some time, and by the application of flannel bandages, the swelling decreased and the limb seemed quite sound again. These were not encouraging circumstances, however, under which to commence a long period of imprisonment. The less so, as from what I had observed, I feared that in the event of illness I should have to submit to a very limited amount of medical attendance probably in consequence of being frequently imposed upon by the prisoners and having private practice to attend to doubtless of a more remunerative character the medical officer was exceedingly rapid in his progress through the prison and not more so in that than in his diagnosis and prescriptions with the pangs of hunger consequently gnawing within me and the dread of bad health and a ruined constitution haunting me day and night, I endeavoured by constant occupation to obtain some mitigation of my sufferings. I read all the books I could get hold of, wrote farewell letters to friends, hoping and believing that I would be sent to Western Australia, as it was then the practice to do with all healthy convicts of my own age who had received similar sentences. I also seized every available opportunity of conversing with the old lags or convicts about prison life, and it was here I received my first lessons in slang and phytology, and began my study of the convict and his surroundings. 
but I could not yet think of myself as a convict. I had the usual prejudice, or rather horror of the species, entertained by the middle class, and declined to accept the offer, made in kindness, of having a neighbour in the same cell with me. I was compelled, however, to take exercise for some minutes every day, together with another prisoner, and I was usually best pleased when I had happened to be put into the same crib with one who had been a convict before. It was during these daily rounds that I witnessed, with sadness, the evil effects of sending boys or lads to prison for a few days or weeks for some petty theft, and placing them in constant contact and association with the habitual and reputed scoundrel and ruffian. These men were always willing to make a convert, and they generally succeeded, for the battle is half won ere they bring their forces on the field. It is here that the juvenile offender is nursed in villainy. Here he learns the inducements to crime, and from the lips of the hardened and experienced ruffian he hears of exploits and deeds of darkness which inflame while they pollute his imagination, and he longs to be free that he might add some daring feat of wickedness to the catalogue he has heard. There can be no doubt that the indiscriminate associations of all grades of criminals is one of the most prolific sources from whence our convict prisoners receive the constant and foul supply. It was in one of these open-air cribs that I was initiated into the mysteries of prison politics and prison slang, for the convict has his policy as well as the government, and also his official, or rather professional, nomenclature, in which he enshrouds its meaning. To be an adept in prison politics is, first of all, to know and understand all the prison rules and regulations, not for purpose of obedience, but evasion, to discern the disposition and habits of the prison officers, with the view of conciliating or coercing them into trifling privileges or concessions, to know the various methods of treatment, diet and discipline at the different prisons, and the character and disposition of their governors, to contrive to be sent to the prison which is supposed to be the most comfortable, and to know when and where good conduct and bad conduct will be productive of the best results in the way of removal or remission of sentence. In my solitude and with the prospect before me of a long experience of such company, these conversations with my fellow prisoners possessed a certain kind of interest for me. I was also always eager to learn as much as I could of their previous history and the cause of their imprisonment. One day, as I was taking my daily outdoor exercise, I observed an old man in the convict dress cleaning the prison windows a short distance from me, and I asked my neighbour in the crib who he was. Oh, that's a beauty, said he. He was walking down the street lately, along with another chum like himself, when a gentleman noticed them and asked them into a photographer's to get their portraits taken, and gave them a shilling each as being the two ugliest specimens 
of the human race he had ever seen. How long has he been in prison? I inquired. Goodness knows, he exclaimed. I think about eight or nine and twenty years, and the longest sentence he ever had, except the first was sixty days. What are his offences usually? Oh, nothing but kicking up rows in the streets, or smashing a window. Last time it was for a fight with a poor man with a large family. He got up the fight on purpose, and as both were about to be apprehended, he says to the man he was fighting with, Jack, give me half a crown, and I'll swear all the blame on myself. Poor Jack was glad to accept the offer, so when they were taken before the magistrate, the old beauty said, Please, sir, it was me that assaulted that man, and as I am entirely in the fault, I hope you will give me all the punishment. So Jack got out rejoicing, and the beauty got in, chuckling over his half a crown, and speculating on the feast he would get with it when his sixty days expired. How long does he generally remain out of prison? I then inquired. Why, said my friend, two days is a long time for him. If he is beyond that time, he will come to the prison and beg a meal. Why does he not go to the poorhouse? I asked. Because he is more accustomed to the jail and likes it better. He is generally employed in cleaning windows and other parts of the prison, and he likes a lark with the prisoners, most of whom he knows. Finding my companion so communicative, I continued my inquiries and asked him, what young fellows are these in the next cell? They have both been in the army, he replied. One of them committed a small forgery. I think he forged the captain's order for some boots. He expected to get legged. Footnote 3. Penal servitude. End of footnote 3. And get out of the army, but he has been sucked in. They only gave him a few months' imprisonment, and he will have to go back to his regiment again when his time's up. His brother's now at Chatham doing a four years legging, but he hasn't to go back again to the army. This fellow swears he'll commit another crime as soon as he gets out. Whether this threat of committing another crime was carried out or not, I cannot tell. But in the earlier years of my imprisonment, I came in contact with several prisoners who had committed offences for the purpose of getting out of the army. Of late years I have not met with any having been perpetrated with that motive. Noticing a delicate, melancholy-looking young man opposite to us, I inquired who he was. Oh, I pity that man very much, said my friend. He has got a sentence of twenty-one years penal servitude and is as innocent of the crime as the child unborn. How do you know he is innocent? I asked in amazement. The guilty man has turned up now that they cannot punish him, and confessed. Shortly after this conversation took place, I had an opportunity of learning from the lips of one of the principal offenders in the case for which this young man was unjustly punished, the following particulars in reference to it, which I give in my informant's own words. I and other two miners like myself went to a horse race a few weeks ago. 
Towards evening we got a little on the spree, and I asked my two chums to come along and see a woman of my acquaintance. This woman was kept by a gentleman in the neighbourhood, but this was only known to a few. She was about forty years of age, and although she was supposed by some to be fast, I knew long before that she was loose. Well, as we were all enjoying ourselves in this woman's house, who should come in but her brother, and so, to clear her character with him, she swore a rape against us. But the worst of it was that that poor married man there got convicted instead of one of us. When we ran from the house, the other fellow split out from us, and after we got away a bit, we met the married man. As we were chatting together, we were all three arrested. The woman, it seems, had an ill will either to that man or his wife, and she swore against him on that account, and we have all three got twenty-one years apiece. I was glad to hear afterwards that this man got his liberty after suffering six months' imprisonment but had it not been for great exertions on the part of his friends, he would have had to pay the full penalty. I have known, in the course of my prison experience, about a dozen well-authenticated cases of innocent convictions, but only two of them succeeded in getting a pardon. The one after enduring about eighteen months' imprisonment, the other a shorter period, but strange to say his pardon arrived on the very day of his death in prison. I have generally observed in cases of rape and crimes of that kind, when the female was advanced in life, that the crimes were not so black in reality as they were represented in the newspapers, and that the offenders, if not made actually worse in prison, would be more easily cured than the thief genius who requires special and, as I think, very different treatment to that which they now receive. In this prison I also made the acquaintance of a professional cracksman, or burglar. He was a man of fair education, good appearance, and considerable natural ability, much above the average of his professional brethren. He had been living luxuriously in London, on the fruits, of his professional industry and skill. Till now he had escaped all punishment, with the exception of a few months' imprisonment for a mistake committed at the outset of his professional career. In answer to my inquiries as to his case, he volunteered the following information. A few weeks ago, one of my pals, companions, showed me the advertisement of a Scottish jeweller, wherein he boasted of his safe having successfully resisted the recent efforts of a gang of burglars. I said to my pal, get Bob, and let us go down tomorrow by the mail train to Scotland, and we will see what this man's safe is like. We all three came down here a few weeks ago, inspected the jeweller's premises, and decided on doing the job through an ironmonger's shop at the back. We had got the contents of the ironmonger's till, and were just through the intervening back wall when the copper, footnote four, K 
policeman. End of footnote four. Heard us and signalled for another bobby to come and help him. Out I sprang and had a fight with the policeman and got knocked down insensible. My palm bolted and got off. Bob and I got cocked. Footnote five. Caught. End of footnote five. And as we had first-class tools on us, new to the authorities here, they have given it us rather hot. Do you think you could have opened the safe? I understand those patent locks are very difficult to pick, I remarked. Oh, said he, I would not waste time trying to pick the lock. Drill a hole and get in the jack and I can bring power to bear on it sufficient to open any safe. The great thing is to be able to get the time. The work I can easily do. Then Bob, my pal, is one of the best blacksmiths in England, and as true as steel. I always take him with me in a job of that sort. It so happened that I had a very good opportunity of proving that the burglar's high opinion of his pal's ability was not without foundation. On our removal to England, the cracksman was leg iron to me as an additional security against his making his escape. There were five couples beside ours, and after we arrived at our destination, and whilst the prison blacksmith was engaged hammering and punching off my irons, Bob, with a smile of contempt at his efforts, took up some tools that lay beside him, and liberated the other five couples before the blacksmith had freed me and my clever companion. The chief incident which occurred during my imprisonment in Scotland was a conspiracy among the convicts to murder the night officer and make their escape in a body. I was not considered safe for the job, and knew nothing of it until it had miscarried. The chief conspirator was my friend the cracksman, who made tools out of portions of his bedstead that opened not only the lock of our own cell, but that of every other cell in the prison if required. The prisoners were generally in couples in each cell at that time, and the plan agreed upon was as follows. One of the convicts, was an old man subject to fits, and it was arranged that he was to feign a fit for the occasion. The assistance of the night officer was to be called, who was to have his light put out, by the fellow prisoners of the one in fits, who was a strong muscular fellow. Meanwhile the cracksman, whose cell was opposite, was to unlock the cell doors of all the prisoners in the plot. This dark and desperate scheme was frustrated, however, by a little lad who had heard two of the convicts conversing about it. His term of imprisonment expired on the day preceding the night fixed for the accomplishment, and he gave information to the governor, who placed officers with firearms in the ward all night. Next morning the suspected prisoners were searched, and the lock-picking instruments were found on the cracksman and there the affair ended. The only result which followed the discovery of the plot, so far as I could discover, was that they were removed from this prison to England rather earlier than we otherwise should have been. 
Previous to our removal, the governor, who was a very sensible man, compared with those under whom I was afterwards placed, told me that I was about to be sent to England, along with some of the worst characters he had ever known, that they were all leaving the prison with the character of conspirators, except myself, that he had given me the best character he could give to any prisoner, and that he hoped and believed I would reap the benefits attaching to good conduct, and be liberated long before my companions. But I was not born under a fortunate star. Almost all my companions had longer sentences than I had. Bob and the cracksman had two years longer, but as they managed to secure the convict's prize, they were sent out to Australia, and were liberated, I believe, two years before me. Some prisoners with sentences twice as long as mine were also liberated earlier than I was, and I remember alluding to this circumstance in a letter to my friends, written when I had been about four years and a half imprisonment, and for doing so my letter was suppressed. The night of my departure for England at last arrived, and I found myself for the first time placed in heavy leg irons, along with eleven others. We were put into the prison van for the railway station, and as soon as we were seated in the carriage there commenced a scene which baffles all description. Some of my fellow prisoners commenced shouting, some screamed and laughed, others mocked and jeered, whilst above all curses loud and deep hurtled through the stifling air, and made night hideous with the sound. The yells and oaths still ring in my ears, and that which was to my companions a scene of the utmost joyalty and nerve which was to me the dearest approach to hell my imagination had ever conceived. It was a cold spring night that witnessed my degrading departure. When I arrived at my destination in Yorkshire, one of my legs was considerably swollen. It is a cold spring night now, that swollen limb has for years been in the tomb, and the dismembered trunk on its ticket of leave has not yet returned to its long-lost home. End of chapter 3